So we are now up to, we are still on sutra number 230, which is the yamas consist of non-harmfulness, non-deceit, non-covetousness, continence, and non-attachment. We went through um, truthfulness, non-deceit, and ahimsa, but now we are up to non-covetousness. Non-covetous means not to want anything that isn't yours already. Enjoy things, but without personal attachment. And then I love this line, don't send out grappling hooks to them from your heart. Wow, the hooks of ego. Um, Swami raises this, just this interesting point here. You know, the difference between the, the need to own something in order to enjoy it, and once we enjoy it, the need to own it. I was trying to just kind of tune into that's just a very interesting thought, that we want to have control, we want to have consistent access, um, we want to have, you know, we're not, we're not able to just pass lightly through things. I remember the story, the subject is the question of soulmates. Um, now, I can't keep setting that down there because I've got a microphone there now. Yeah. Well, no, that's not the problem, that there's a microphone here. So every time I set my cup down on it, it's going to go, Cook! That was the concern I had. Um, what I need is another little table thing. Thank you. Um, remember that story where Swami, it's such an odd story, and he's talking about the monk who had a longing for a perfect romance, and his guru told him to look out the window of the train at a certain point, and then he saw a woman on the other side, and it just completely um, satisfied that desire. And all he did was just look out the window of the train and connect with her. I mean, we always think of that in terms of uh, just soul... Oh, I see. Look at these. We have twins. Just put it right there. That's right. It's perfect. Um, We always think of it in terms of that romantic fulfillment and that whole story of soulmates. I mean, it's an amazing story no matter how you look at it. But when I was reading this, when he said that we imagine we'll enjoy something more if we possess it, that... You know, his, his desire was just somehow to know that it existed. Who could say what kind of, or that there was on a different level, but he didn't have to have, didn't have to be his on a long basis. You know, it's not like all of us go around desiring lots of things, but I know sometimes when I, you see pretty homes or pretty neighborhoods or things like that, Swami calls it grappling hooks, but sometimes this, just this little thought goes out, doesn't it? It's just, oh, that's lovely. I wonder what it would be like. You know, what if I were coming home to that place every day? Or you see a happy couple or someone who looks attractive to you and you think, oh, what if that were mine? That's the word that comes into our minds, isn't it? And I, it's, I think it's very, we don't necessarily think of that as coveting. We sort of, oh, I don't know exactly what we think of it. But it's right here in the uh, Patanjali's Yoga Sutras that that little bit of an impulse that we have to have it and then, of course, sometimes we get to have it, but then we don't get to keep it. Just one way or another, somehow things are taken away from us. We go bankrupt and we lose our home. Or we get old and we don't have the same attractiveness that we had. A, a man who was a friend of mine, he, um, he built up a company and then later sold it. And uh, then for a while, he, they still had him come in and he was part of the story. And then gradually they stopped listening to him, <laughs> you know. And he just sort of, 
he just talked about it. And, you know, he said at first it bothered him, and then he just really began to enjoy the fact that they had just stopped listening to him. And it's sort of like we don't have to always be... It, 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 what I was really feeling was how unsettled we always are. You know, we're always just wishing something else was there. And our society is, um, you know, an absolutely... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a bubonic plague of unsettledness. I remember listening to uh, Dr. Ruth on the radio... Dr. Ruth was at the uh, Booksellers Association. In fact, she was, she was apparently her publisher is distributed by us too. Did you see pictures of her? Really? Did I talk about Dr. Ruth? Of her, uh, she pictured Avital, yeah. And Dr. Ruth is about this big, just this peppy little lady. I, I actually used to listen to her because she was on, when I, was, when I would have to drive back from Ananda Village late on Saturday night to do Sunday service, Somehow she was in that slot on the radio, and I drove that four-hour drive sometimes with two hours of Dr. Ruth. She's an extremely feisty, outspoken, and she's, she looks exactly like you would expect her to look. I mean, she looks like someone who is past caring what anyone thinks. <laughs> it's not like she's let herself go, but she's just she knows who she is, and that's the story, and that's just that, and hello, honey, and what can I do for you? <laughs> kind of like that. But I heard her on the radio, and it was so valid. She said, why are so many people so insecure in our society? Oh, she said, because everywhere you look, you're told that you're not adequate unless you have something that you don't already have. In other words, a simple fact of advertising. It just goes on endlessly. We're always walking somewhere, and somebody's trying to tell us that we need something we don't have. And when you, uh, when you have been responsible for marketing, as I have been, and know that every one of those things is written by somebody alone in their room at night with a typewriter or their computer, and they're desperately trying to come up with a good idea, you sort of look at them just a little differently. Uh, once when Brian McSweeney and I were traveling, as it were, from Calcutta to Delhi, which is a short plane ride but always takes all day because the plane never leaves on time one side or another. We've done it several times, and it always takes all day. So we had all day. And we, we just opened the airline magazine and we started just reading all the ads and analyzing them from the point of view whether they, were, whether they worked or not. Or when you really start looking at them, there was one, it was an advertisement. Uh, well, I'll give you the copy first. The copy was just about how, you know, how hard you've worked to get where you are and how you really have to just sharpen your image and you need to know who you are. And you need to be able to every day just affirm that clarity and power that you have. And it was for a mirror, <laughs> for the right kind of bathroom mirror. So every day you can just look in the mirror <laughs> and see who you are. And your image is going to be crystal clear just as you are. And we were in hysterics. I mean, like, who thought that was a good idea? But somebody did, and there it was. But it's this constant unsettling. Just always unsettlingness. So we might think we're not really covetous because we're not wishing for a big home or a lot of money or great fame, but it's a much more insidious unsettling energy for us is to always just wish that there was something that we had that we don't have. And the more um, we can restrain, this is what the yamas, the yamas are, the more we can restrain that inclination to just feel that we have to go outside of ourselves um, to be at peace. You know, so much of the spiritual path is, 
It's just this little nuance of restlessness. We try to sit to meditate and we just can't quite sit. We can maybe get our body there, but our mind just keeps oscillating. But it keeps oscillating all the time. That's why, you know, living as we do in an environment such as we're living in is not highly recommended for the yogi. Um, although we all know why we're here and we have good reasons. But it's, it's, we have to be aware of how really dangerous this environment is to us and how careful we have to be not to get sucked into it. But just to move very quietly in the center of it and not feel that what's going on around us really has anything to do with us. I remember Swami talking about that time when he had to go down to North Beach in San Francisco on a Saturday night to meet a music teacher, I think it was, and he literally, they had all the nightclubs there, and it was, it was a very um, uh, sensual, unsavory district. And he said, even they have people standing on the street trying to lure you in, you know, trying to tell you, come on inside, you'll enjoy it if you come in. And it was so, it was just like um, uh, Maya had taken visible form and was trying to pull on him. And he said in his own heart, he just started singing Sri Ram, J Ram. He was actually singing it out loud, he said, but the street's so noisy, nobody knew. But he just walked it. He just cut right through the middle of it, he said, and nothing, nothing of it affected him at all. He could just see it coming at him like waves, but his, his own energy was so strong the way it was going. So this contentment of the heart is really what's being talked about here. And that actually comes when we start talking about the niyamas. Contentment is actually one of the niyamas because that's what happens when we stop reaching out all the time. Um, but it's, it's very, you have to be very, very, very conscious of it. And as I was saying, I find it more to be just a slight mental attitude almost than a compulsive shopaholic or making plans like that. Nowadays you can get up in the middle of the night and want and buy things. Anyway, it's well worth thinking about. And he said, The positive side of non-covetousness is the awareness that you already are everything. So you can see how the complete opposite of that is just contentment in yourself. Sometimes you imagine, you know, what would it be like if we were really, really poor and just couldn't buy anything? It's actually, it's very easy to be extremely poor. When I was at Ananda Village and we were extremely poor, that was not difficult because the thought of buying anything just never crossed your mind. (laughs) You just, you couldn't, so you never thought about it. Having a small amount of money is much more challenging because then you can always make a decision about whether you're going to spend. But having nothing is easier. And someday maybe we'll have nothing again and then we'll get to find out. Any questions or comments before we go on from that one? Yes, Tom. Is that also, could you also say that is wishing things are other than what they are? Oh yes, that's another way of saying it. You're not content. Things are not the way they are. You need something to make you happier. I mean, that doesn't always apply to things. Oh no, exactly. Well, oh yes, covetous relationships, praise, understanding, uh, appreciation, friendship, any of those things. Yeah, just that, that you're... I mean, you can, what I was, what the main point is, make it generic that I'm content in myself or I'm 
always on edge trying to have things be different. I want you to relate to me differently. I want that response to be different. Uh, I mean, I was on United Airlines, which um, uh, is probably going to go out of business really soon. It's, it's just, it's a seedy airline. I don't know how else to say it. I've been on lots of airlines. It was just not comfortable and it was, it was really cramped. And you know, just the temptation to have the mind just start saying all the things that you wished it weren't. And I don't know why, it just had a vibe that was not, it was the planes were really old and super crowded and you're five, six hours of all that and everything about you wants to rebel. It's just so interesting to just watch the mind. Everything wants to rebel and just be unhappy and find a problem and and you have to keep just pulling it back in and constantly pulling it back in and that's the real yoga. I mean, the external discipline is helpful, but the real, the real discipline is inside. Why would I want that? Why would I want things to be different than they are? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, Marilyn. We have two of those now. Could we possibly activate two of them at the same time? Go ahead. When you were talking about the mirror and... Um knowing who you are. Uh-huh. I've been wondering about that. Um, well, I grew up thinking or that, that I needed to know who I am. Right. But now I'm starting to think all I need to know is what I do next. And it's not necessarily the same thing. You know, I, I'm here and I'm just, I'm in the flow, but it doesn't have anything to do with who I am or not. You're describing progression. Um, um, in order to be on the spiritual path, you have to have a strong enough sense of your own reality to be able to choose who you want to be. Sometimes people will try to come onto this particular path because they have never actually organized their own egos and they don't want to and they like the idea that they can just surrender it without ever having to live with it. And I mean that they're not healthy in their own egos. Their feelings are suppressed. They haven't really thought about who they are. They haven't faced the suffering that they faced. And so they hope that they're going to get a free ride from all of that just by surrendering it. And it doesn't work. So there's a progression where, yes, you're right. You have to get a solid state of self-awareness. You have to really understand what motivates you and who you are then you can decide that you're not interested anymore. That there's another level that is more enjoyable, which is what is called self-forgetfulness. And that's what, that's what you're doing when you're just allowing yourself to be a flow of energy, is that you're just self-forgetful. I mean, the self is perfectly there. It's perfectly integrated. It could assert itself if it wants to, but you just prefer not to think about it. That's a phrase that we don't use as often, but it's a very good phrase. You can either call it God-remembrance or self-forgetfulness. But self-forgetfulness often comes first, especially if you're doing a lot of seva, karma yoga. That's why Swami said a few sutras ago, the best way to overcome the ego is by sensitive, loving service. Because then your, your consciousness is on what you're giving and not what you're getting or who you are. So it's, it's just progressive. If you hadn't done that work to get yourself solid and clear about your own reality, you wouldn't be able to then just put that aside. Because if it was unhealthy, it would fester. But if it's healthy, then you can just 
not have to worry about it anymore because your motives for letting it go are not, are, are clean. They're not fear-based. Do you understand the difference? Yeah, it's very important. I was asked a question um, when we showed the movie wherever we were in Boston. A woman asked me if Ananda would be a place, and it, she asked it theoretically, but I, she was asking about herself. And you know, What she was saying in essence is, I'm going through very difficult emotional problems. I asked her later, you know, like recovered memories and that sort of thing. She was fragmented. She was emotionally and psychologically fragmented. She was looking for a safe place to heal. And she wanted to know if Ananda was that place. I said, no, I don't think so. I said, you have to be, you have to have a certain amount of psychological sturdiness to come into the community. If you're always just cracking apart on a very fundamental level, we're just not, it's not, our path won't help you. You need to sort that out first. And then, I talked to her later, you know, what stage of healing are you on? But somebody who just can't move through a normal day because all these different things are fracturing their functioning, that's really not us. You have to be past that a little bit. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be sturdy. There's a certain sturdiness that's required. The first quality of the spiritual path is courage. But that willingness just to forget yourself because it's just no longer interesting is actually very important. And there's another piece to that, which is... I mean, you, we do, and this is what sometimes people have difficulty making this transition. This is not what you're asking me, but, you know, um, if you're the only one in your world who has a, a serious spiritual attitude, you have to often fight really hard against everyone. And you have to become really just stubborn in your own point of view. I'm just not going to listen to anybody about anything because nobody's telling me the truth. I know where I'm going. And then you come into a community of people who are actually trying to help you and are able to help you and that habit of just doing it myself um, then has to be put aside because it's no longer your friend. You have to accept help from your guru bhais. You have to accept help from your guru. And it, it sometimes takes people a little while to realize that an attitude that used to be my friend is not my friend anymore. And that's where I was saying, you're, you know, I'm... Uh, People sometimes earlier on the path, people at different times in their lives, but, you know, there's a real fascination. Who was I in past lives? What is my karmic thing? What is this about? Why did this happen? And then at a certain point, the way I feel about it, it all becomes generic. It's like, who cares? Who cares really about the details of how I feel and why I feel and what happened? I just want to get rid of it. I just want to forget it. I'm, I'm not interested in myself anymore at all. Whereas at a certain point, being interested in yourself is very healthy. Because if the alternative to that is to be ignorant of yourself or afraid of yourself or out of control all the time and not knowing why, you have to, you have to fill in that piece comfortably. Okay, good question. That's why it's directional. Spiritual path is different for everyone. What is forward for one person is not necessarily forward for someone else. It just depends on where they are. Some people I went through, and I've talked to you all about it, you know, the period of time when I had to be very, very uh, self-willed, really. Very opinionated and self-willed and pushy because I was not comfortable in my own skin and I had to get comfortable just letting the energy come through me. And once I got comfortable with that, then I could decide whether or not to do it. But when I was unable to do it, that was not the same as freedom. And that's where self-understanding comes from.
You have, I mean, that's why you have to work on it. Swamiji said, far better to be over-emotional than to be self-censoring. That was his phrase. Self-censoring is the key phrase there. Oh, I can't be like that. Oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to think like this. I don't want to have that. When uh, In the early years of Ananda in 1982, uh, when Swami got married, um, he got married because the community was becoming so unbalanced in the direction of monasticism, and so much of the monasticism was the worst kind of monasticism, where it's just like, you know, this is what I have to do. Every, anything else that I would want to do would be wrong, so this is what I have to do. And it was just extremely unhealthy. It was not a spontaneous expression of people's true nature. It was just a desire not to have to deal with a whole lot of things, and this will solve it. So Swamiji just went out and did something completely unexpected and stopped being a monk and became a householder, and it just kind of knocked everybody for a loop, really, because it just was so out of the box. But he raised the question because he also put it this way, I felt inwardly guided to do this. And all of a sudden people stopped to think for a minute, what did they actually feel inwardly guided to do rather than what did they think they ought to do? And that's, you see the huge difference there. So, you know, it relates to what we were saying, but especially to what you said. Okay, any other questions or thoughts? All right, the next one is the humdinger. And Swami really does not pull any punches on this. And it is the question of continence, uh, non-indulgence in sex, brahmacharya, flowing with brahma. He says continence might be put negatively, as the other yamas are, by saying simply non-indulgence in sex. Actually, this yama, though put negatively, is brahmacharya, which means flowing with brahma, which is... uh, very elevated idea. And then Swami just says, plainly and frankly, continence for most people is a frightening prohibition. Sex, my guru used to say, is the greatest illusion. Then he makes this interesting statement, from sexual desire proceeds all the outward directions of one energies and therefore all the involvement in other delusions. Desire for wealth, for mind-numbing alcohol or drugs, for fame, power, and all the mighty host of worries, of warriors for evil, evil described in the Bhagavad Gita. Sex completely involves one's thoughts in outwardness. So it was very interesting. I never, Swami wrote things in this book that I never heard him say anywhere. To, but the, the idea that it's the beginning of all your involvement. I certainly remember during the 10 years that I lived as a nun, and I lived with, with a group of women. And because we were building Ananda, we were hardly cloistered. And we were by no means, you know, outside the company of men. We were often in mixed groups, often. But nonetheless, you know, we were, we were still often just with our own gender. And we were also had repudiated that kind of um, pointed personal involvement um, that had just characterized my life prior to that without my even thinking about it. And I was fascinated by how powerful it was to lose track of your gender. Because I realized how much gender is not so much what's in you, but it's what reflected back to you, especially when it's reflected back to you as an opposite. Just being with women all the time, it sort of became neutral. And it was, it was mostly created by that looking at the opposite. 
I never thought of it by drawing your mind completely outward, but it was a very dramatic um, reality to me, and I became very conscious of it over time and just kind of got uh, an impression of uh, what Swami's hinting at here. You know, how you can just shed this physical awareness. However, for most people, this is a frightening prohibition. In the book, um, Ask Asha, that I just published, that was what I was doing at the, at the book fair, there's a question, and it's from a young married couple, and basically what they say is, mod- you know, even moderation is out of the question. What should we do? <laughs> and I wrote them various things, but I also said, like, uh, just keep in mind why the masters all, you know, caution us. I mean, this is like, this is one of the most confusing lines in the sand for most people. They can go sort of partway into this teaching and then they freeze there. These two, I've, I've told you about these two Hungarian women that I met in Seattle many, many years ago who were totally infatuated with this path. They were sort of groupies. They just really liked me and they were following me all over the city and so on. And seven o'clock one morning, I got a phone call and they had bought Whispers from Eternity and they came rushing over early in the morning and they had opened it to one where it said, save me from sex slavery or something like that, you know, from being infatuated and free me from this. And they sort of looked at me and said, is that what this path is about? And I never saw them again. (laughs) It was just out of the question for them. They couldn't go there. So what Swami has done here is he has spoken very unequivocally. And at the same time, he acknowledges the fact that for most people, this is not something that we can really do. But what I was writing to this young couple, what you really need to keep in mind is that this is a very real thing. And you can't just pretend that, oh, we're different. You just, it's part of just accepting the fact that, you know, I can do some things on the spiritual path and I can't do others. And I'm just going to have to be where I am and work with this, but not uh, try to change the teachings so that they suit, you know, our present level of reality. So Swami first starts by saying, it's, it is the, the one that pulls us out into everything else. And I guess because it's so fundamental, and it's so, such a powerful drive, I remember reading in uh, Viktor Frankl's book, and he was talking about, because he was a psychiatrist, and he was uh, in the Holocaust, and he was in the concentration camps, and he remarked, He said, even when the men were nearly dead with starvation, he said there was still sexual longing in there, just coming through them. I mean, even he himself, he was astonished just how how deeply ingrained it is in us. So we have to also have a lot of respect for this. I mean, in our society, mostly we just try to settle that energy in one place. I mean, if we're not able to accept a life of brahmacharya, which is a great idea if you can do it, is just at least settle the energy. When I was um, going out to teach, uh, the, at the beginning, when I was leaving Ananda village and going out to teach, I, I, I often talked about relationships and sexuality. It was not very often talked about, but to me it seemed like it was the elephant under the rug and that we needed to talk about it. And... I realized when I said to Swami, you know, I'm going out to represent Master, but I'm not entirely, I don't entirely follow his teaching. I said, because Master says you should be absolutely purely celibate until you get married and that's, you'll attract the right partner to you. I said, it's, 
I can't really. I said, I'm, bound, I'm, I'm, I'm caught between what Master said and what Swamiji has taught me, which is you can't give people advice they can't follow. You can't suggest to people that they have to do something that they're not going to be able to do. I have to advise them in the direction that it's going to help them. Swami's answer was very interesting. First he said, well, I'm a direct disciple of Master and I can't contradict his teachings. You know, I, I'm, the, I'm the fountainhead and we, we have to keep the waterfall as high as it needs to be. But he said, this age is so restless. He said, it's, it's better that people are, at least are monogamous, even if they're not married. At least they're monogamous. At least their energy is, is anchored. That's how I always thought of it. It's anchored somewhere. And it's not always then a disruptive power in your life. You don't always have control over whether or not you're in that situation. But if you are, then think of it like that, that this is like my ground zero. And therefore, at least then I don't have to be restless with this energy. That's why in stable societies, they arrange marriages and they arrange them young. They just never allow that energy to get carried away like we do in the West. Master you know, laughingly, but laughing with it, just rueful laughter. He said, just right at the height of the uh, uh, sexual frenzy in young people in this country, he says, we send them off in cars together. <laughs> it's like, how could we be so crazy? We're just, Swamiji's comment to me was, it's going to be several generations before marriage and relationships get straightened out because it'll never get straightened out until people have a a more mature understanding of sexuality and they will never have a more understanding of sexuality until we start raising generations of young people with the right understanding. It's too late by the time people are just sailing around, he said. And that's why he's, he's given in Education for Life and in other places. He really wants us to be educating children before puberty about the nature of sexual energy and how it's going to feel when it comes and what they ought to do about it and how they can work with it. And he says, until we sort of... And you can see how long that's going to take. He said, until then, we're always going to have all this chaos of relationships because people are just driven by this energy and they lose their, they lose their discrimination because it's the founding energy that confuses everything else. And so he, he talks about this, about how... You know, the sexual drive in men is uh, alleged to be stronger. Women are asserting, women are demanding the right to be as crude as men, which I think is a peculiar thing to demand, but they're demanding it, okay? And they think that that gives them some freedom. I I just sort of, it just puzzles me. But anyway, there you have it. Um, But he, Swami, is always quoting how that master says that men are more attached to sex and women are more attached to maya. I just love that. You know, women are attached to home and family and all the little nuances of did he bring me flowers and, you know, it's Valentine's Day and you forgot and all of this sort of crazy thing, you know. And men's energy is much more direct, you know. But, and, and, but women just... Swami adds here, um, sex, however, remains central to all human delusions. If girls don't have the same interest in the sex act itself, They spend, so it seems to me, Swami says, even more time talking about boys than boys do about girls. I thought that was actually very astute because little girls are always, you know, long before boys are thinking about the girls are wondering who likes who and and they're always playing out. Swamiji talked about his little niece who was like three and she had a special giggle that she only used when there were little boys in the room. (laughs) It's It's just always in there. 
We just come and we have this, whatever that represents to us. And I think it's really worth just mulling over in our minds. What does this really represent to us? Why is the energy so strong? And you know, now in our society, we have a lot of aberrated energy. And it's just... Um, but Swami is telling us, there it is. And then he, then he starts warning us, you know, that... Um, about how, what a, drain, what a physiological drain sexuality is for men. And he doesn't, he just doesn't mitigate any of this. And the, I'm, I feel myself torn because on one hand, I see so many people get so just crazy, confused on the spiritual path because they read things like this and then they try to apply themselves to a discipline that they, it's not going to work for them. And yet, Swami just says it as bluntly as he can say it. You know, and there you are. Um, and that, but he also adds here that um, for women, sex, the result of sexuality is that they have to bear children. But he also says too much promiscuity causes women to age prematurely. I mean, isn't that ironic? I mean, think about that. It's like the one thing that a woman who is, is, has a, an inclination to be promiscuous would be, would be to keep her beauty. And the karma of it is that you lose it. And I'm not really sure exactly why would that be so. So maybe because there's a coarsening of your consciousness. Maybe because you're too physically engaged all the time. Your energy is always outward and you don't build inner resources. I've actually, um, especially before I became a Nyaswami, when I was trying to think how to become a gracious old lady, and I was looking at all the old ladies around me, my, my profile, my 60 to 80 group, trying to figure out what, why some of them looked exhausted and why others didn't. <laughs> but I began to realize also when my, I was taking care of my aunt or visiting my aunt, she was like 88 or 89 when she died. And um, she was just, she was way, she had a big widow's hump like this and all, you know, she had a very strange neck and her face was all this and she never, she'd never, done anything with hair or makeup anyway just she always wore it in a little bun but I realized that as you age women increasingly become their eyes their eyes and that that's really what you see and and I thought that was the best news I'd heard because that's the one thing that you have the slightest bit of control the rest of it is just this sort of dying plant that just kind of withers around you <laughs> and no matter what you think about it it's just going to go its way you know, and, and women who work really hard to stay young often look worse than the ones who just let it happen. I mean, this is in a female body. I think about these things. But my aunt, I realized all I ever saw was her these bright, almost I was going to say they were beady little blue eyes, but they were just very, very, very vibrant. Everything around them was just completely disintegrated, but they were just right there. And I realized I just looked in all of that, and that's what I looked at but aging prematurely. And then, this is the most amazing. My guru said that they also, women, however, who indulge too frequently in sexual intercourse, age prematurely. My guru said also that they become sterile, owing to so much male heat entering their bodies. I mean, that, that was, I'd never read that before, ever. I'd never heard him say that. Master said it to him, and he finally decided to say it out loud. But you see, that would be the karma if you think about it. 
because this is something that is not necessarily only, but at least partly reserved for having children. And you, because, I mean, I've just wondered and wondered to myself, like, you cannot just break the karmic law and just walk away from it. And that's sort of what the generation that's always uh, my generation. Well, that's what they said, but we think this is true. We're just the little bird in revolt all the time. You know, we can smoke marijuana, we can take LSD, we can just be as promiscuous as we want to, and it won't make any difference. I just love it. You know, just little twerps declaring the truth <laughs> and then imagining that the universe is supposed to, like, cooperate with us. But there is, you know, the problem of infertility for women is a really serious issue these days. You know, many, many people, I mean, you see all the clinics all over the place. I'm not by any means saying that every woman who has difficulty was promiscuous, but it's, it's, it's interesting that Master just said, oh, yeah, this is the relationship, just straight across like that. I, I, Master's amazing. And Swami decided it was time to say it. Is there any comment or thought in any of this? Marilyn, yeah. I, I was wondering if, um, like, two women who are friends, heterosexual relationship, right. but is it still sexual? I mean, we're, it seems like any kind of friendship would be based on a sexual energy. Um, I don't mean the, a physical sexual Are you talking about a me, if it's men and women together? No, no two women or two, two men. Um, I'm, trying to th I'm trying to think... You can get into a lot of trouble trying to be friends with people without any sexual involvement, you know, you, because that can, that can take you outside of yourself. So where is that energy oh, coming heavens, from? Oh, heavens, there's beautiful soul friendship where it has nothing to do with sexuality. It would be, it would be quite wrong to think that all attractions are sexual. I, I'm not quite following um, you. Now, this is what I think is true, though. If, I don't know if this is where you're going or not. I mean, oftentimes a married couple will come to me and she has a male friend or he has a woman friend and who he or she is trying to persuade their partner that, well, it's not a sexual relationship, it's just fine. No, I'm afraid there's always that magnetism in there. And I, I've never, I've rarely seen it that a, a, someone who's married to someone else can have a close friendship with someone of the opposite gender um, and, it, and without leeching some of the energy out of the marriage. I mean, I'm not going to say it's never could be done, but I've rarely seen it done. And most of the time when I'm involved in it, it's because it's just happening as clear as day. And so you don't actually have to be physically involved for there to be an, a constant exchange of magnetism. See, because, see, this is the whole thing about it. This is where, ah, this is where the outer involvement comes. We have the yin-yang symbol back on the wall. All of us have to come eventually to be a perfect balance because the soul has no gender. It's not like we're actually male or female. Eventually, we have to be a perfect balance within ourselves. And for the most part, although not always, people are attracted to the complementary gender is really the better way to say it. I mean, nowadays, for many reasons, people have many same-gender relationships. I was in New York City, and it's, it's just part of the culture. It's just everybody walks around. You, know, you, you see men together and women together, just almost not, not quite as much as you see men and women together, but... It's just part of the flow. So quite apart from that, but even in those relationships, there's always a complementary balance because that's what we're looking for. It might not come because of the gender of the physical body, but there's always a complementary balance. 
And sooner or later, we have to realize that that balance is completely accessible within us. And we don't have to lean outside to find it. In, in the Naya Swami vow, it says, I will never marry or if I have a partner, I will never take a partner, I think is the word he uses, or if I have a partner, I will say that my partner belongs only to you. And in any case, I find the balance within myself. And that's really, that's the final statement. And that's why the sexual energy begins the, the, the belief that in order to have balance, I have to have something outside myself. And I think that's why it rolls over into everything else. Because once you start down that thought form, there's no end to it. And what I realized during the 10 years that I was living as a nun, you know, sexuality just constantly reinforces body identification. It reinforces gender, it reinforces egoic attachment, um, and it it just reinforces that you have a body because it's a very physical experience. And so you're always reminding yourself that you have a body. You're always just participating in your physical body. Whereas uh, continence, celibacy, brahmacharya, you just you don't use your body in that way. You're you're living more in your energy flow, and once and and also once you don't reinforce the um, comfort, the release of tension, the whatever all the, the the I'm a worthwhile person. Somebody loves me. If it's not coming from outside, ideally, it begins to come from inside, and you you just begin to become androgynous as we should be. I've noticed something else which is just interesting is that, you know, wherever people are on the spectrum of male and female, um, they tend to attract a partner who's like somewhere close on the same side of it. So if, if oneself is more uh, the yin-yang balance, you'll often have a partnership that is quite like that. I, I've noticed in my life with David over the years, I mean, the way we live now is different, but in, when we were in the first 30 years of our marriage... Um, that a balanced life requires a yin-yang balance. And if you're making a household with someone, it needs to be a balanced yin-yang household. And it doesn't really matter whether the male or the female or who in the relationship is yin or who is yang, but if, if either is missing, the household goes a little wonky. In our household, David and I are both, we both tend toward yang when we, get off, but we have as much of the yin in us as we need. But I would, I would watch our household just get kind of yang. What are you doing today? Okay, I'll see you later. All right. Did it go well? Good. I'm glad to hear it. You know, just like, just like nothing, just, just business, business, business. And then I would look around and the laundry wouldn't be done. There was no food in the refrigerator. You know, there were no flowers anywhere. It just the whole thing had just gone yang. People were just working out of the space. And when, I, I mean, I learned, you know, when I, I would sense that, like both of us would sense it, and whoever, as we, we would sort of put it to ourselves, whoever had a little yin to spare <laughs> would go grocery shopping and cook or do something with the house just to bring it back to where it, would, where it needed to be, and it didn't really matter who. And, you know, I've seen other couples where they just go yin, and they're just always in the house. <laughs> they can't get out of the house. They can't you know, just move out into the world and they have to kind of take turns pushing each other. It's just the way that we are. But if we can be able to just always have that within ourselves and not have to be fed 
from anywhere. You can see that's where we have to go in the end anyway. And here's the great trick, you see. That's also the great secret to positive relationships. The closer you are to being balanced within yourself and the less you are relying on someone else. And that is why sexuality, even though it seems so enormous at the beginning, actually is not a basis for a lasting relationship because it has to be replaced um, by the fruit of the exchange of energy, which causes you to be more whole and content in yourself, which is by definition is going to cause you to be less hungry for that external affirmation. Does that make sense? And that's why the relationships will just naturally go that way. I remember many years ago, Swami, this was before Naya Swami's, Swami sort of made a comment like, just that, well, all the couples that Ananda at the end of their lives would just separate and live like sannyasis. It was when he went, I kind of went, <laughs> it was not at all what I wanted to hear. And I, I suggested that instead of phrasing it like that, perhaps we should phrase it, let's see if. Because <laughs> it just was not, uh, it was not an attractive prospect. And when he, Swami announced the, the Naya Swami, I was with him early in the day of the day he decided to do this. And then that evening he called a meeting. So there was a group, this was in Italy, and Shivani and Arjuna, among others, were there. He called mm, almost all couples, maybe all couples, except Uma, probably. Um, and in his little tiny voice, Shivani said, do we have to separate from our partners in order to be Naya Swamis? <laughs> And I already knew that we didn't. But it was very, it was very touching because, you know, she, she was prepared. She was ready to do that if that's what Swami was asking. And Swami's answer was, I don't see why that would be necessary. That was just his comment. And that was, in fact, he had seen that just by the way. You know, he had seen, uh, he said one of the reasons he, it took him so long to decide to launch the Naya Swami orders, he couldn't get past the fact that the real, so many of the true sannyasis in our communities were married couples. He, he just couldn't, he, he said he just couldn't get around it. He didn't know how to get around it. And their marriages did not appear to be an obstacle. And then finally it just occurred to him, oh, well, there's a simple solution. They'll just do it together and it just won't be an issue. But by the time a couple is ready to become sannyasis together, the entire basis of the way they're relating has or needs to shift, ideally has, rather than trying to make it shift by that movement, but it, it's just putting it on a different basis. And believe me, it's a big change. And it's not, it's, it's, a, it's a very nice change. And it, it's, it's, it's so hard to explain that the less there is of the personal, the more, the more there is of everything you, you're looking for. It's, it, people work it in a backwards way. They, there's not, I mean, I hear people say, well, you know, he didn't send me flowers for my birthday. I think he's just really not the right one. Oh, dear. <laughs> There's this wonderful book. Men are, this is the Men Are From Mars book. It might be the Men Are From Mars book. But there's something in there about how men and women keep score. I only know fragments from these books. I don't read them entirely. Men and women keep score. Men keep score according to the magnitude of energy required to create it. Like, I, I pay the mortgage on the house. That's worth a thousand points. You know, I, I pay the tuition for the kids. That's worth, worth another thousand points. The wife, for the wife, for the woman, everything is one. 
The house is one, one point. Flowers on my birthday is one point. <laughs> Remembering Valentine's Day is one point. So you can be putting the kids through college and have paid the whole mortgage, but if you forget the flowers, it's just boom, you're off. <laughs> it's just uh, crazy. But that is the way the male and female brains work. So that's just how it, how it all is. There's a whole lot of... I, those books are funny because they're so true. But, but you get past it. And you are complete in yourself. And then it's altogether different. Yes, Sabina. The, wherever the microphone is. Someday somebody will give me a great gift and we will sort this out. Okay, go ahead. I, no, I just, I don't know what the answer is. It's like everybody will just have an automatic capacity to be heard on the recording. Go ahead. A couple of comments. Um, one of the attractions or inspirations for me of Ananda is the fact that there seem to be a, quite a few couples that seem... Um, advanced spiritually and have French, seem to have friendship, a healthy friendship. Uh, I think that's a tremendous role model for householders um, in our society. The other uh, actually question was, could you speak to Lahiri Mahashaya's relationship with his wife and apparently their decision to have children? I believe they had three sons. Well, yeah, and they, I think they also had some daughters too. Um, well, Master, Master relates, Master speaks of his parents, that his, my mother made a startling admission to my sister Roma that my mother and father only were together as man and wife once a year for the purpose of having children. So they had essentially a celibate relationship, which in the West just makes everybody so freaked out. Well, because it's not necessarily such a big part of life as people think it is. It's just the way this world, our society works. It's not that it's nothing. For most people, this is a horrifying prohibition. But it's also, it's just possible to just live on a different plane. And what you, what you think you need through sexuality, you don't really need it through sexuality. You can find it in so many other ways. So it's, it's as Swami, all I can say is what Swami said. When the delusion leaves you, you cannot imagine why you were ever captured by it. He said that he was sitting, there was like, ten married couples in front of him and he said I know you're all married and he kind of shook his head like this and he said but all I can say is once the delusion leaves you he didn't just mean sex he just meant men, women he said you cannot imagine he said it's so transparent once it's gone this whole excitement and this compelling need and so on like that Lahiri was setting an example Lahiri was a master there was nothing there was no reality but Master was married as, as William. Master was married as the king. I mean, people can uh, put on the costume and act in a certain way. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're acting in the way that everyone is acting. There's an interesting... Um, I read this in the books I was reading recently about Anandamoy Ma. Anandamoy Ma was married, but there was never any physical relationship between herself and her husband. And she rarely said anything about it, although that was a known fact. 
but but then there was this one comment, and it was very interesting. And she always she always spoke very impersonally about herself. She never called it my body, my life, my anything. She said everything that this body has done has been an example to show people how you you have to be. You can be in this world. So apparently, this is not required. Because if it had been required, it would have been included in her lila. That was her. That was her comment. That was the only time she ever commented on it, which I thought was a sweet way to put it. Of course, it's not required. It's just a delusion. We have to be in a body. There's a gender reality. There's a, a hormonal imperative that seems to make us feel that we have no choice, and our society tells us we have no choice. But of course, we have a choice. It just depends how deeply we identify with our physical body, and how strongly. We have to be affirmed from the outside. I mean, many, many, many great souls, many great poets, many great musicians, many great scientists just don't marry. They forego that whole side of life. And as a consequence, as Swami says, they become great geniuses because all of that energy is directed upwardly. But for most people, as Swami said, it just makes them unhappy. It doesn't really make them free. So... That's why you have to be very judicious in how you understand this. But you can't, you know, there's no question that Lahiri Mahashaya was indulging in sexuality, that he, that he fathered children is quite different than actually being compelled. You know, it's just quite different. All right, let's take a very brief break, and then we'll come back. Because Swamiji is also talking about There is undoubtedly a certain beauty in romance, but how quickly it fades. It is like a flower-bordered entrance to a life of increasingly shared misery. (laughs) 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 Of increasingly shared misery. Flower-bordered entrance. I mean, these are probably things he said to the monks. Okay? Maybe he said them in church, who knows. Um, And then, my guru said of women, there she sits like a queen, this is obviously addressed to men, ruling you because you cannot rule yourself. Wow. And of men, he said, they become abusive for the same reason, because of lack of self-control. The basic reason for our final inevitable dissatisfaction with every human fulfillment is that we are all destined for the highest soul satisfaction, union with the bliss of God. Nothing less can ever satisfy us for long. So, there you have it. So he's really giving us an idea of where we have to go. Sexual self-control is vitally important on the spiritual path. It creates a store of energy in the body and enables one to direct that energy upward to the brain. Uh, Men, especially who achieve self-control, become mentally brilliant. And then he just says, if you're not able to achieve total self-control, at least try to be moderate and keep your understanding directed in the right way. There's many, many levels to this. Um, But of what use is mere suppression? Okay? Be inwardly free. And then he says, the positive side of brahmacharya is that it helps one to love all mankind, men and women equally as your own in God. And he says, in marriage, continence increases the love between man and wife and is a great aid in overcoming ego consciousness. I mean, that simple line, that continence increases the relation, the love between men and women, is just 
that just flies in the face of everything that our society teaches. And you can tell a true teaching from a false one by the fruits. And what you see in our society today is a terrible mess in terms of marriages and men and women and relationships. And so it's, Swami's also just saying is, let's have the courage to think radically. Let's not really feel that we just have to go along with what everyone else is saying. We have to apply this sensibly to our lives and to the lives of the people we know. But we should also just have the courage to say, we're not living ordinary lives. We're not here just to be like everyone else. We really want, we are really serious about overcoming the ego. And if we're serious about overcoming the ego, we have to just be very sort of calm and casual about this. It's Swamiji in a completely other context when he wasn't writing as, as frankly and as powerfully as here. His comment was, he said sex is just a physical imperative. It's like having to put a sweater on when you're cold or being hungry for lunch. <laughs> it's, just, it's because you're in a body and your body compels you in these certain ways. And he said, and, and people become particularly agitated. This was a completely different conversation than the one he put in this book. People become particularly agitated as if it had a, a different quality than just simply the fact that we're in a body and the body compels us. I mean, most people are extremely and highly influenced by the gender of their bodies. We behave like women because we're in women's bodies. You know, not, not all women do. I remember Shivani's the famous example when uh, Swami was in Vancouver in the 70s and there was a, a, a spiritual conference. This was the era when they had lots of conferences and, and women were agitating for equal rights and Shivani was part of the entourage with Swamiji. And they had no women featured on the program. And then there was this sort of uh, hoo-ha happening, um, kerfuffle happening, because there were no women featured on the program. So the organizers came to Swamiji and asked if Shivani could be on the program, because they needed a woman. And Swamiji, just this famously, just looked at them and said, Shivani's not a woman. And he refused to play along with it at all. But that was his first comment. Shivani's not a woman. You know, she's in a female body, but she, she doesn't function like a female person. She just has her reasons of her own, a female body. But she's not, not defined by that. The other one that was so, was less direct, but it was sort of like that. He was walking with Nirmala down the street and they saw some dress in a window that Swami didn't think was very attractive. And he said to her, if you were a woman, would you wear that? <laughs> And she said, well, as it happens, sir, I am a woman. <laughs> but no, I wouldn't wear that. <laughs> but you love that. It just sort of goes away. And that really is our own, that's our own objective. And we need to be, it's a little bit like what I was saying to Marilyn earlier. You have to be conscious of who you are and what's influencing you. It doesn't serve us to be ignorant. But once we become conscious of who we are and what's influencing us, then let's just do our best to get out of it. We don't want to just constantly be um, saying it over and over again. I am female, I am male. Swami talks about, you know, the, the rel- relatively speaking, how much energy women put into their appearance. Uh, it just, you know, men just don't put out the energy that women do traditionally, not Ananda women as much as many. But when we were making the movie, we actually had a lot of conversation about that because Ananda women are so... Um, uh, you know, we don't usually wear makeup and we don't fancy ourselves, we don't gussy ourselves up enough. But on film it could just look so washed out 
So there was the, the makeup artist did a pretty good job in the movie of making us all look like a, the best version of ourselves <laughs> without looking as, like we were made up from somewhere else. But uh, let's see, what, what was I saying about that? Uh, oh yes, that we are influenced, and this is a physical imperative, and you can only fight so many battles at the same time. That was the thing I was going to say. When I wrote to that young couple, I said, just be who you are and don't worry about it. You know, you'll just make yourself so crazy. Just let, let it run its course. It'll sort itself out in time. But keep these things in mind. And especially don't overblow this like people do. Okay. Anything else? Then we have one more, which is, the fifth is, non-attachment is the fifth yama. It's often been translated to mean the non-acceptance of gifts. But Swami says that Master accepted gifts all the time. It would have been rude not to. And he says, um, the, is to not accept as your own even that which is you. I mean, it's a very, it's a subtle point. And non-attachment is different than non-covetousness or it means even though this is your reality, these are your talents, this is your body. We were just talking about your body. This is my body. But I don't have to make myself be defined by that. So, he doesn't write this here, but in the Raja Yoga course, he mentions that the Patanjali says the fruit of this is that you'll remember your past lives, and you'll remember your past lives because if you did, if you lose the narrow identification that you have with this particular reality, then you'll be able to remember all the other bodies you were in too. It's just so much fun to play with these things, and he was he's commenting here that the fruit of this quality is tremendous inner freedom. And that inner freedom comes because we're not always clinging to who we are and what we are and our age and our position in life and our security. Just There's so many that's just like the covetousness. We're always just needing to have things a certain way. And and he just goes, everything is on loan and he addresses the issue of children. And I just was hearing about a friend. When I was in India, not this time, well, I mean... Uh, last winter, um, there two young one man died. He was a, he was a medical student. He was just about to get his medical degree, and they used drugs. Uh, what were people recreational drugs? You know they were getting high on drugs, and he he killed himself. He died, and he was the only son in an Indian family, and he was just about to finish medical school. I mean, I could still, I could still just think about it, you know, just like, I can't even, you can't even imagine what those parents went through, are going through, just, you know, all that effort, all that expectation. He was the only child in the family. Just goes like that, and then, and to be thrown away in such a careless manner. But, so Swami touches that, what about your own children? And Swami says, yep, them too. It's, it's, it's just like when he was talking about brahmacharya. This, these are not things that you just say, well, I, I, you know, I won't be attached to this and this. I mean, we can give up the things that are easier first. It's all directional. But he's wanting to understand there are no exceptions to this. If we are really identified with the, the, the ever, the eternal reality within us, then, we ha- then it has to be absolute. But we also have to be kind to ourselves. I just, when, when people talk to me about trying to be detached from their children, 
What can you say? It's just, it's not in us. Talk about bodily imperatives. You know, it's just such a, a deep and, and, you know, what, what parents will do with, for their children, the self-sacrifice, the power, it's just so far beyond anything. It's the way God makes us. And some things you just have to say, well, sir, it's up to you to sort it out for me. I don't know, it's beyond me to do it. It's so, uh, how do I say it? It's so easy to talk about it until it's you. <laughs> and then something just takes over. But you can't get out of it by doing it badly. I remember the a sermon that I gave in here some time ago when I was, I remember talking about my father and his attachment to me, which in the end was deeply disappointed because I just left home and really never went back. And, uh, but would it have been better for him not to love me the way he did? Would it have been better for him or better for me? No. That wasn't going to be the solution either. Would it have been better for that couple whose medical student's son died just before he became a doctor not to have uh, given so much to that child? course he should have they, they should have done it but to be ready to be doing it for god and not for self and therefore if god intervenes to be able to to take that is that's the very tricky part it's it's it doesn't begin to compare to the loss of a loved one but when i had that project of making anand into a california city and i worked on it for 18 months obsessively and then it ended in a day. It ended in a minute when Swamiji shifted our direction. It was a very tiny but extremely interesting example of why am I doing this? Am I doing this because this is what God has given me to do? Or am I doing this because this is who I am? And I, I think that that's how, that's how we have to relate even to our own children and to our spouses and Everything that we're attached to, as long as it is given to us to do, we need to do it as if we're going to do it forever. But what we're really attached to is God's will. When uh, Swamiji first moved David and me here, um, because he was still living at Ananda village and I was just essentially pulled out of a, a life that was in close association with him to one that was at a distance... I, it was it was very hard for me for the first two years, and it was fine when he wasn't around. I could work happily and cheerfully, but whenever he would come to visit, which was also positively frequently, when he would leave, I would just cry and just be so upset. And I kept wanting to go back. And then one day I realized that God had put me here, and if I turned my back on what God had given me, nothing that I wanted would come to me. And so I just let it go and accept it. And it, it, wasn't, it wasn't that hard to accept. Exactly the same circumstances. Nothing had changed except my realization that I was um, not listening and not paying attention to what God had given me, but instead was trying to insist on my own way and, and falsely believing if I got my own way I would have what I wanted. And I think that's the only way that one can work with death and loss and disappointment and, you know, uh, children and spouses just not doing what we want them to do, is just to realize that it's God that we're trusting. And our attachment, our only attachment, 
is to what God gives us. And we take responsibility with gratitude, whatever it is, but our only attachment is to what God wants for us. And that's what, that's what actually keeps you free. I don't think that's something you can just step into. When Vasudeva died and Jacqueline was having to adjust, she said, really so, just perfectly, ah, she said, the temptation to be sad is always there. And that's how she described it. It was always a temptation. It was always lurking in the background that, that she, she should be sad. And then she would just move out of that and she wouldn't be sad. It was like he was gone. She hadn't wanted it to be that way, but she wouldn't be sad. But the temptation was always there. I thought that was so perfectly expressed. You know? And this is, again, you see, this is something we practice all the time. We don't have to wait till cataclysmic loss comes. We just watch. This is what's been given to me. Let me be attached, deeply attached to what God gives me rather than to what the thing that he has given me. All right. Any questions or thoughts on that? If not, we have barreled through the yamas. And next week we'll start on the knee yamas. Okay. Thank you all very much. So that was, we finished 2.30. And next week we'll start 2.31.